Today's scripture reading will come from Romans 8. It will be on page 944 in your Maroon Bible. We will start with verse 28. And we know that for, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The very word of God. You didn't know he could do more than just hug you at the door, did you? He also reads scripture. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, we thank you for this time together each week. Together as a church family, as a church body, as this one small section of the body of Christ. Um, to turn our hearts and our minds toward you. Um, to, to reorient ourselves uh, sometimes from the weeks that we've had. Um, God, we just... Lay this time before you this morning, God, we pray that um, that as we meditate on your word this morning, as we open your word, that you would reveal more and more of yourself to us, so that we might know you better, so that we might know your greatness, so that there may be no doubt when we leave of who you are to us, um, who you are to this world, uh, and, and what you're about and what you're doing. We love you, God. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen. So I've gotten several questions this morning, phrased somewhat like, are we really going to read all of Genesis 41, um, all 56 verses of Genesis 41? And, you know, there's 57 verses, sorry, 57 there was a side of me that made you all want wanted to make you all stand and see how many were still standing at the end, but um, I decided against that. Uh, so I am going to start Genesis 41. Bonnie, if Dennis falls asleep, just okay. After two whole years. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. 
And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, and there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So I just want to pause here. I'm going to try and break this up a little bit because it is so big. So we find ourselves, when I read scripture, I find it really helpful to enter into the story of scripture, to enter into what it is I'm reading. So after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. Well, two whole years after what? After Joseph was imprisoned. Um, some say two whole years after uh, last week we talked about Joseph interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. Some people think it was two years after that. Some people think it was two years after his initial imprisonment, after the episode with Potiphar's wife, which we covered two weeks ago. Joseph's been sitting in prison a while. Let's, let's just leave it at that. And he's forgotten in prison because this cupbearer said, Wow. I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh about you. This is amazing. You've got this gift from God. I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh about you. And apparently that didn't happen. So Pharaoh has these dreams. And they are strange dreams. And if you're Pharaoh in Egypt and everyone is looking to you, you know, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was in charge of making sure the sun rose each day and set each night and the Nile didn't overflow and babies were born healthy and the crop was bountiful and all this. And you had these dreams. It's a bit disturbing. And then when you turn to all these people that you would normally turn to for guidance in these situations and they go, essentially, I don't know. That's, I think that's essentially what the Bible is saying that they said. I don't know. It's distressing. And you put on top of that that the Egyptian culture held this belief that when you slept, you entered into this other realm where the gods could reveal things to you, higher things that you, you didn't, you, you, when you were awake, that you, you couldn't really absorb. And now it's even more disturbing. And then when no one can tell you what any of that means, what do you do? Well, it just so happens, verse 9, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, which was Potiphar. We dreamed on the same night he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. So all of a sudden, this cupbearer says, oh yeah, that amazing thing that happened to me. I completely forgot about that amazing thing. Now I remember. just took me a couple of years. 
but now I remember. And I was supposed to say something to you, and so now I'll say it. So Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, and they shave him, and they change his clothes. You know, Hebrews wore these, these beards. Egyptians were shaved. The Egyptian pharaohs had these, these beards. Um, I always find it interesting that King Tut was a boy, but somehow still had a beard. I don't know. Um, and so Joseph is kind of, I mean, some scholars look at this as resembling almost like a resurrection. He's pulled out of the pit and he's, com- he's completely changed. He's shaved. He, they change his clothes to present, to present before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, and we heard this last week, and I, I, I really want you to hear this again. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's, Joseph is saying, I'm not going to interpret anything for you. God can interpret for you. And he, and he told the cupbearer and the baker the exact same thing. And so uh, Pharaoh recounts his dreams for Joseph and explains that, you know, I asked all my magicians and I asked all my advisors and they said, I don't know. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, and Joseph says it a second time, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. I'm reminded of the story of Abraham when when God says to Abraham, should I reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do? And later it says that, that Abraham partnered with God. And it's almost like Joseph is telling Pharaoh the same thing here, that, that God is extending this to you. God is saying, partner with me in this. And, and he's telling this to, to Pharaoh. I mean, it's, it's in Egypt. Egypt didn't, yes, there was a, there was a series of, of kings in Egypt the Hyksos kings that weren't exactly, you know, truly Egyptian, but, but still, I mean, why would Pharaoh care if God is wanting to show him what he's going to do? So Joseph says there will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So Joseph gives Pharaoh this plan. 
from God of there's this famine coming and it's going to be bad. It's going to be so bad that people are going to completely forget seven whole years of really bountiful harvest. That's pretty bad. And here's this plan. And Joseph says, you know, select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And some could look at that and say, well, Joseph is setting himself up. But I don't think so. I think when we look at the story of Joseph that we've gone through and we see the character of Joseph, I really don't see that. So this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. So the signet ring thing is it's what they used to use. It was a ring that had sort of a an engraving in it, and you would put it in wax, and it was just like, it was like having Pharaoh's signature. So for all for our purposes this morning, Joseph is essentially like the prime minister of the most powerful empire in the world at at that time. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah. For those of you that are familiar with J. Vernon McGee, J. Vernon McGee says, I don't know why he didn't just call him Joe. But he gave him in marriage Asneth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priestess of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 30 years old. And so Joseph goes about carrying out this plan that he laid out for Pharaoh and collecting all of this food and storing it up. And verse 50 says, Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priestess of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, at, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but all the land of Egypt, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the very word of God. Thanks be to God. And congratulations to you for making it through and still being awake. And so now we'll read verse 40 or chapter 42. Um, so if you want to follow along with my notes, I put some notes in, in the bulletin. And then there's the, the spot on the back of the page is blank for you to take additional notes. Um, I'd encourage you to do that as you follow along. 
so what is this? I mean, this is a the, the thing that I struggled with with reading this whole chapter is it's a big chapter. It's a big time in this story of Joseph that that we've entered into over the last several weeks. It's a really big time. It's a big deal, and we'll, we'll get to that, and next week it becomes an even bigger deal. This chapter becomes a really huge deal next week. But what does it have to do with us? We're not famine. We don't live in Egypt. We, I mean, the story is a beautiful story. It's sort of this rags-to-riches story. But what does it have to do with us? I think this story proves something to us that we have a problem with. And I think we do have a problem. And forgive me if that oversimplifies things. We men tend to oversimplify things. But frankly, we have a wrong view of God. Our view of God is often not right. It's not correct. It's not biblical often. And... And, and that sounds like this harsh black and white statement, but let me flesh it out a little bit. Because sometimes we feel like Joseph. Forgotten for two years after serving the cupbearer and being told, you know what, I'm going to talk to Pharaoh about you and we're going to get you out of this situation. We feel that way. We wake up and we think, as Bill said last week, how long, God? How long? How long is this going to go on? How long do I cry out and and not hear an answer? I'm telling you, there's several situations this, this morning. I'm I'm there. I'm right there. And I'm sure many of you are too. David Crowder, one of his early, early songs, says, Wasn't it you I gave my heart to? I wish you'd remember where you set it down. And those are really hard words to say to God. But sometimes that's, that's all that we have to say because we wake up and we feel forgotten. And we feel like we've been waiting long enough. And whether we'd like to say it or not, we sort of feel like God owes us an answer. But the road to blessing is often messy. I mean, look at Joseph's story. It's extremely messy. Look at Abraham's story. It's messy. Look at Jacob's story. It's really messy. Jesus' story has messiness in it. But God is there the entire way. Sometimes we're the ones who make it messy, and then we want God to help us clean it up. And sometimes God has his hand in the mess. I mean, when you look at Joseph's story, Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. God's method for getting him to Egypt. He's put in Potiphar's house where he's tempted. And you think, well, why would God lead him to that? Well, it's in Potiphar's house where he learns how to deal with the politics of Egypt, where God equips him for this call, for this prime minister position. And then he's given this position as prime minister of Egypt, which becomes God's method for feeding his people and the people, it says, of of the earth. And then as we'll talk about next week, it's his method for pulling his people out of Canaan 
And if the Bible is one story from beginning to end of God putting his family back together, it's a huge step in doing just that. So God had his hand all through the messiness of Joseph's life to this point. And we don't like to think about that, about God having his hand in the mess. It's hard. Trials are hard. At times, trials seem insurmountable. And so the second piece of our problem is we make our problems greater than God. We look around ourselves and we see and we know how great God is. We know that. We certainly know it up here, right? But in the midst of all that, we're still facing our own needs and we're terrified of how big they feel. Whether those needs be physical, financial, emotional, spiritual, we're afraid of how big they feel. And so our memory verse today comes into play there. I had a bulletin up here with me. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That is not saying you're not going to have any trouble in your life and everything's going to work out and everything's going to be okay because you love God. It's saying that God is going to be there with you through every step of everything. And it's going to be used for your good. Those are two really different statements, huh? Everything's going to be good. Everything's going to be used for your good. Those are two really different things. John Piper says, I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course, you can't see what it's doing, but don't look to what is seen. Look to what is unseen. Verse 32 this morning says, Joseph says, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. God's going to bring about this famine. And God has a plan for this famine. And it's not just this terrible thing that's going to happen to all of us. It's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. And so when we make our problems greater than God... We lose sight of who God is. We lose sight of what God can do. And we think, God can't handle this. This is so far out of my control. God can't control this. Which we see in Scripture this morning is not true. We make our sin greater than our God. We make our situation out to be larger than God, and somehow, sometimes, what we've done is unforgivable. But really, what we're doing is we're saying, I can't forgive me for this. So how could God forgive me for this? Sometimes we make our sin out to be no big deal at all, but sin is a big deal because sin distorts our view of God. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve didn't fear God. 
They sinned, and then all of a sudden they hid. Why? Because they were afraid, the Word tells us. They were afraid. Sin made God's creation afraid of their Creator for the first time. It's a big deal. But it's not such a big deal that God can't take care of it. If God couldn't take care of it, why sin Jesus? What's the point? But it wasn't too big for God. And so God paid that debt himself. He wanted us back so much that he paid the debt himself to restore us to relationship with himself. And if that's the first time you've heard that this morning, please hear it. That God paid our sin debt to himself. He paid that debt himself. And it, it turns your mind around. It, it, it sounds weird. It doesn't make sense. But he did it because he wanted us so much. And then the last part of our problem is we settle for anything, anything other than God. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. When we look at this story in Genesis and we look at all the things that God has done for Joseph, we look back over the last several weeks and we look, about, we look at all the things that God has brought Joseph through. And Joseph is just one. We look at all these other people in the Bible that have come before us and what God has done for them. We look at our own lives and what God has done for us, what he's done for people in, in our family. And yet still, we settle for temporal, temporary things of this world. They become so attractive. So attractive. I mean, men are terribly visual. A nice car goes down the street. Our wives could be having a deep conversation with us and we go, oh, wow. Guilty. It didn't go well. But it's true. The things of this world become so, so attractive. And we settle. We settle when we have the God of the universe wanting to partner with us in his work every day. Every day, we settle for temporary things that pass away. We put everything we are into our kids. And if one of our kids goes astray, we're crushed because we put our identity in that. We put our identity in our jobs, men. And if we lose our jobs... We're crushed because our whole identity was, was there. God is the only thing who won't fail us. When we put our identity in him, he's not going to fail us. It's, he's the only thing that won't. But yet we settle for all of these other things. So then what's the solution? So we, we, we talk about these problems and... And we sort of reflect on what we're doing in our lives and how we think about God. So what's what's the solution then? Because there's got to be there's got to be hope at the at the end of that. 
the solution is you remind yourself who God is and you remind yourself what God can do. How do you do that? You read this. Ideally, every day, as much as you can, spend some time, some amount of time, short, long, whatever, spend some amount of time reading God's Word because it's only in there that that you're going to continue to see and be reminded and wash over with the knowledge of who God is and how much He loves you. Because how can we expect to get to know someone if we don't know anything about them? We see Joseph in this story. I love this part of this story. We see Joseph remind himself of who God is in a really interesting way. And it's how he names his kids. Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Again, uh, Miss J. Vernon McGee says he, he could have just named them Amnesia and Ambrosia. Which I find funny, but it, and, it's, and it's very simplified, but it's true. It's true. Every time he saw his kids... Every time he said his kids' names, every time he heard somebody else say his kids' names, every time he heard his wife call his kids in for dinner, we do that here, they may not have done that back then, but if she did, he thinks that God has made me forget all my hardship from my father's house, and God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He names his kids in such a way to remind him of who God is. So we remind ourselves of who God is. We, we read God's word. The other thing we have to do is, to, is talk to God. Spend time in prayer every day. Some of us, we, we make prayer out to be this very, very deep thing. And it really is just a conversation with God. And I don't mean to diminish prayer, but... Talk to him. You know, when you want to get to know somebody, you talk to them. You listen to what they say. And church, pray, even when you haven't prayed in days, when you haven't prayed in months or years. We think, I haven't prayed in so long. And now I feel guilty. And I'll do it tomorrow. Don't do that. God wants to hear from you. Pray. Just pray. Spend a little bit of time in the morning, in the afternoon, at lunch, in the car, whatever, wherever you need to start. Pray. Just talk to God. You know, I, I think about it like I have a son who just turned 13. And that's the teenagers are a matter of prayer, by the way. I've learned that just in the last few days. Um I, but we want him to check in with us. Hey, can I go over to so-and-so's house? Yeah, sure, but check in with us periodically. Why wouldn't God want that from us? Check in with him. Let him know how you're doing. 
Invest your time and money in eternal things. Oswald Chambers said the most exacting test of all is to survive. The most exacting test of all to survive is prosperity. Because we're so easily distracted. Invest in the kingdom of God and watch God move. Because he will. Invest your time, invest your, invest your finances in the kingdom of God and watch God move in your life. Because, uh, you know, I think about what would happen if we, as, as the church, like big, big C church here, invested as much in God's kingdom, as invested as much in eternal things as we do in, in these temporary things. What if we invested as much in the kingdom as we do in sports and food? What if we spend as much time serving God as we do watching TV or coaching our kids' competitive sports teams? What if we did that? What would the world look like? Would it change? I think it would. And, I mean, I, I get caught up in temporal things every single day. But I just think about, what if I didn't? How would my life change? How would my household change? How would my relationship with my wife change? My relationship with my kids change? If I stopped getting distracted by temporal things and I started focusing more on my creator. How would life look different? I think it would look pretty different for me. And the last thing that we have to do, which is the last part of our solution, which is the biggest part, is stop focusing on ourselves. If we're going to have a, if we're going to have a right view of God, we have to have a right view of ourselves and how those two relate. Tim Keller says, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. Every experience and every conversation isn't connected to me. It's connected to God. But sometimes we focus so much on ourselves that all we can see is our flaws. And we can't see anyone else because we can't see past our own flaws and our own stuff. And for many of us, because of all that, the hardest thing in the world to do is just to love ourselves. It's terribly hard. There are people who pay counselors and psychologists a lot of money because they can't figure out how to love themselves. And yet, the, the odd paradox of the gospel is that as we focus on ourselves, we notice our own flaws less. We begin to love ourselves more as we focus on others. As we are obedient to God... We, we begin to see less and less of ourselves. And because of that, we then love ourselves more because we become undeniably aware that the creator of the universe loves us. We are loved by a great and awesome God. And he is great. Everything we've sang this morning has been about how great God is. And he really is. It's not just some phrase that we use. It, it, like, it really is the gospel. He created us, and so to love ourselves is not to be selfish. It's actually to love his creation. 
Keller goes on to say, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Again, if that's the first time you've heard that, please hear it. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So in light of all that, what is the right view of God? I can't do it, but God can. What do we hear Joseph say over and over? I can't interpret your dreams. God can interpret your dreams. And I'll be a part of that, but but I can't do it. It's not in me. Joseph's story to me, along with many other stories, just in Genesis, much less the rest of the Bible, Joseph's story shows me that God entrusts his greatest treasure to broken people. And I don't think there's any of us in here that would say, I'm not broken. I don't think any of us would say that. Maybe. But I can't say it. And who did Jesus associate with? I mean, every time we see Jesus, he's with broken people. And he's entrusting them with his greatest treasure. Worship team, you can come on up. Our, our closing song says, I can see you now. I can see the love in your eyes, laying yourself down and raising up the broken to life. To me, that's, that is the right view of God. That is the view of God that I want to have each day. When I wake up, that is the view of God I need to have because it's the only view of God that saves me. It's the only view of God that gives me the strength to stand up to my giants. Because it's the only view of God that reminds me that he's right next to me. So if this morning you find yourself with a God that is not big enough for your problems... It's possible that you may want to trade that in for the God of the Bible.